Jesus' Amen. name. Amen. Isaiah 42 this evening. The unfailing servant. It's the keynote of our consideration this evening. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the blessings are, are, compared to the second section are mostly just beneath the surface or deeper down. It requires research, um, history, culture, language, a lot of other things to draw from it, uh, some of the fuller meanings. But by the time you get to chapter 40 through 66, the end of the book, the blessings are on the surface. and so, uh, it's such a different, so much of a blessing, uh, even in casual reading. In this second section, 40 through 66, Isaiah introduces two servants. Now, one is an individual, of course, we know to be the Christ. He is the obedient servant. The other one is the disobedient servant, the nation Israel. They were to be, collectively, a servant of God. And, you know, if you, when you come to Christianity, many folks, they, they don't get it right away. They have to work their way through a lot of things. Uh, others uh, come right in and just seem to just have a, a nice panoramic view of Christianity and faith, what's expected of them. Well, with the Jews, of course, there were those that got it, the righteous Jews that became a remnant. And then there was, of course, the many apostates that plunged the kingdoms uh, apart from each other and ultimately into captivity, punishment from the Lord. Now, in reading this second section and you come across these different servants, you say, well, how am I supposed to know which one is Jesus, which one is the kingdom, or which one is Cyrus, who is not called a servant, but he acts as one. God has appointed him to do, had appointed him to do that. And the answer, the key is in the superlative language that applies to the Christ. It's lofty language. He's, he doesn't fail. He doesn't sin. And the context, that context lets you know, okay, this is Messiah. Whereas when you get to the nation Israel, they're struggling. And so if you look at chapter 42 and you look at verse 4, for example, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Well, that's the Messiah. That is superlative language. It is lofty. Then you look down at verse 19, and you have a different description of this servant, who is, uh, who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send, who is blind as he who is perfect, and blind as Yahweh's servant. Seeing many things, verse 20, but you do not observe, opening the ears, but he does not hear. And so that's different. You say, well, what about the perfect? Well, the perfect means in that sense, and we'll get to it, uh, they had everything they needed to be that obedient servant, and they blew it. It is not saying that they were perfect in the, of themselves, but they were, they were primed, they were prepped. And uh, that's an overview of what's coming, because we're really going to talk a, a lot about Jesus in these coming chapters. Now we look at verse 1. And there we read, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Here is the unfailing servant. He is anointed. He's elected. And that Hebrew word elect is chosen. 
All elections involve, uh, involve choice or um, forgery. <laughs> All right, that's a political statement for the evening. Anyway, uh, Matthew, uh, the apostle, in his gospel, when he writes, when he quotes this verse, he quotes it in Matthew 12, verse 18, and he applies it as a fulfillment in Christ. He says, Matthew, that this servant here in Isaiah 42 is Jesus Christ. And he gives an interpretive rendering that is so appropriate, he refers to him as the beloved. Matthew 12, 18. And, uh, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. That he's quoting Isaiah. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall declare justice to the Gentiles. He goes on to quote this section about the, 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 uh, the reed and, and, the, and the smoking flax. We'll come to that in a moment. My point is, we know this is speaking of Messiah, the Christ. And the, the language is quite endearing. He, behold my servant. Well, Paul comes along, he writes more about this servant. In the Philippian letter, he says, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's the Godhead, known as the Trinity. Well, the God, the Son... Not created, begotten. How can, how can we illustrate that a little bit? Consider the sun, the star of our, in, of our solar system. Let's just say, for the sake of analogy, it's always been there. The light that comes from the sun, that is the light of the world. John chapter 9, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That light has always been. It's just coming forth from the Son. And Jesus Christ came forth from the Father, begotten, in that sense, not created. Uh, and, of, of course, uh, the warmth from the Son, you could say, that's like the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who comes beside us because uh, the, they are eternal, they are distinct, but we have a single God. Uh, and Christ talks about that in John 18, when he says, Father, return the glory that we had before the foundation of the world. Well, here in Philippians, he says, who being in the form of God, uh, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And that Greek word is slave. And that is a servant. The difference between a bondservant and a servant we start zooming in on this, is the bondservant wants to serve. They want to be under the authority of the master. They love the master. The master loves them. It goes back to the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, uh, when, when they use the word servant in, the, in, in this light, that is, they're tying it into the Old Testament, when the servant was set free and says, I don't want to go free. I'm going to stay here with you. He says, okay, let's go over to the doorpost and we... Put a hole in your ear lobe and stick a pin in it, and you're going to be my servant. And this is who we are in Christ. Uh, so he continues, Paul does, and coming, uh, well, let me give it more context, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. This man's not human, but he comes as a human. 
This is to be the virgin birth into the, the matured Christ. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He didn't bail out on us. Even the death of the cross, all voluntary. I have 12 legions of angels. I can just call them and put an end to this madness. But there's a greater madness I'm putting an end to, and that is the curse of souls who are separated from the God, from, from the Father. And, of course, Christ died for sinners because there's nobody else to die for. So this, behold, my servant. Well, the New Testament gives us more information about this servant. Matthew says he's the beloved of the Father. Paul says he's equal with the Father, whom I uphold. Well, this is why he's incapable of falling, since he is begotten, coming from the Father, as sunlight comes from the sun, and not made. My elect one, we would say the one, that distinct from everyone else, no runner-ups, no second place, God Almighty. The Son, God the Son, equal with the Father. And, and, and I, I just love talking about just the Trinity, the Godhead, uh, because it is just so special to us. There's nothing like it. Uh, anyway, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Um, Matthew, again, interpretive rendering, my soul loves. Matthew twelve eighteen. behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. And appropriate so, because God is love. And there's no love lacking in the Godhead. He says, I put my spirit upon him. Now this is the third, the second of three, two of three times that Isaiah makes this declaration concerning the Messiah that um, the spirit will be upon him. That warmth of the spirit. At his or concerning his incarnation, the coming of God as a human being. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. You want to know what God the Father looks like? You look at God the Son, and you'll find out what the Father looks like. Philip, have I been with you so long? You have not known. He who has seen me has seen the Father, because they are inseparable. And it's just broken down so we can understand it. We can understand the one begotten is the Son to die for us. And the Son leaves behind the Holy Spirit to teach us about the Christ and to minister to us and help us to minister to others. The incarnation is found in, among other places, Isaiah eleven two. The Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might. And when he said, I can call those twelve legions, there's the might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And that is not a terror. That is a reverence of the Lord. There was uh, just uh, the, he, the complete package. Concerning his baptism here, I have put my spirit upon him. Uh, later we will read concerning his public ministry. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound. And he stops because the next phrase comes, brings vengeance. And that is the second part of the ministry of, of, of Christ when he comes, his second coming. But the first part as a lamb, second part as a lion. 
And so Isaiah 11.2, the incarnation. Here at verse 1, Isaiah 42, we have his baptism. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And of course, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, John saw. And then, of course, his public ministry, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Which he, he goes into the church at Nazareth and he opens up the scriptures, the scroll, and he finds this part. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he reads this section and he says, today this prophecy is fulfilled. And for that, they wanted to kill him. Well, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And we've been going through Acts and we find how determined the Jews do not want the Gentiles to receive the exact salvation that they have unless they become Jewish first. But that's not what the scripture says. And, and Paul, of course, uh, struggled so hard and suffered so much uh, teaching from the scriptures this very doctrine that is found here and again in Isaiah, but we'll just keep it here. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. The purpose for which Israel, the seed of Abraham, was chosen and preserved and invested in, that made perfect for their mission, it was for the blessing of the nations. They had theirs. They were supposed to get others to have some of that. Genesis 12, 3. And in you, Abraham, all families of the earth shall be blessed, not turned into Jews. Where Israel failed, the chosen servant of God would succeed. And we'll get to the failed servant in, in, in this chapter, but uh, this is taught in Acts 26. We just had this. Paul giving his, uh, putting everybody on offense and attacking sin in individuals, telling them about repentance and holiness. And he says that the Christ would suffer. He says, this is what I taught. This is what the Bible teaches, the Old Testament teaches what I teach. That the Christ would suffer. Isaiah 53, for example. Psalm 22. That he would be first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So, the scripture just matches throughout. I just saw an article, a headline, because they're usually not worth reading, and this one proved true to that. Uh, I don't know, five reasons why Jesus is historically is not possible to have existed. And I turned to the first one and said, there's no secular evidence. Well, who's Josephus? Josephus is secular. He's a Jewish historian. He attests to the existence of Christ, Jesus. I just closed it after that. I wish it had their phone number on there. No, that would be getting in the flesh. Uh, but anyway, uh, from the church age through the millennial kingdom, uh, the Gentiles will receive this light. And uh, when Simeon goes to the temple and he picks up the baby Jesus, and he just is in the spirit. You know, thank you, Lord, and I've been waiting for this moment all my life. And he, and he applies the expectation in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, to Jesus as being the fulfillment of the, the light coming to the Gentiles. Uh, so uh, everything we read in our New Testament is connected to, to God and to um, the prophets, and it is not random, and it is trustworthy. Uh, it's not just the, somebody thought this up in the cave somewhere. Uh, somebody who could, uh, anyway. Verse 2. He will not cry out nor raise his voice 
nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Well, the Gentile, uh, pardon me, you'll see why I made that mistake, the gentle Messiah, not the Gentile Messiah, though he is the Christ of the Gentiles. Uh, here in verses 2 and 3, he, he is gentle, he is kind, he is patient. His mission of grace is characterized by quietness and gentleness. Now, this is important, especially for when Antichrist comes on the scene. Antichrist will behave as though he is the world's savior. And it would be a no-brainer for anybody that knows the scriptures that he's a fraud because he'll be unrighteous and he won't be gentle and he won't be quiet. And we'll come to the verses that tell us that in a moment. But this verse says he will not cry out or raise his voice. He's not going to draw undue attention to himself. Now, there, are, there was one particular moment in John 7 where he cries out with a loud voice and, and says, If any man thirst, let him come to me. Uh, out of, you know, and so that is a, a beautiful section of, of Scripture. But he will not draw undue attention to himself. He will not cry out even to death. And so when Isaiah 53, and I, when I, Isaiah, uh, a thousand years before, the, almost a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ, talking about the Christ, says he's going to be quiet when he goes to, to his execution. Like a lamb before his shearers, he opened not his mouth. He took it. And, uh, of course, he cried out with a loud voice, but the context, of course, is different. Uh, it's not uh, drawing undue attention to himself, as Antichrist will. And there is a noticeable contrast between John the Baptist and Messiah just by this verse. Uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3, uh, not 42 where we are, but chapter 40, looking back. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so there the prophet cries out to point to the coming Messiah. Uh, Not drawing undue attention either. It's just a subtle distinction that is interesting. Uh, But then there's the sharp contrast between the coming beast, the man who the Bible says he's a monster. He's not a human. I mean, he is human. He's animated by Satan, but he is human. And he is the, uh, what Christ is to the Godhead, uh, uh, Antichrist will be to, uh, to Satan. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a lot in that seventh chapter to say about Antichrist. He says, he shall speak pompous words. He's a big mouth. Against the Most High. Well, it, it, it wouldn't matter if he was saying this in a closet or his apartment somewhere, but he's going to have mainstream media wrapped around his pinky. That's going to be his vehicle. That's why he gets to speak these pompous words. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws, and probably pronouns. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half. And of course, that's that uh, last period of the Great Tribulation period. The Great Tribulation starts out not so bad for the worldling. It ramps up. And it, that second part is horrific, such as the world's never seen. Anyway, uh, this, um, <clears throat> the time will come, as verse 14 tells us, where he will no longer be restrained, the, the, the Christ, but he will judge. Verse 3 now, 
A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He is meek, and the meek shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? Oh, the world will tell you meekness is weakness. That's not biblical. The biblical definition of meekness is strength held in reserve. Pardon me one minute while I shut this off. Um, It's probably the Pentagon asking me how to deploy. All right, there we go. Uh, Back to this. Meekness is strength held in reserve. Take an egg out of a refrigerator, and you don't crack it, ideally, until you're ready to open it. That's meekness. That's an illustration of meekness, because you could just squish the egg if you wanted to. Christ, Messiah, he can destroy, he can end, he he can quench, stop it all, if he chooses. But he chooses instead to let matters play out. He knows the end from the beginning. And this, if you, are, if you are a bruised reed by life, and God is saying, I'm not going to break you. I'm not looking to crush you. A bruised reed he will not break. Now, God is not a brute, nor is he a bully. And he is not rushed either. Uh, that which has been injured, he will not finish off. And the bruised reed is bruised externally. Whereas the smoking flax, its problem is internal. Sometimes it can be both for an individual if you to carry the illustration in, in, into applications of life. That which is damaged will not be further damaged by him. This is Messiah. This is the Christ. Matthew applies this again to Jesus Christ. He quotes this section of Isaiah and he's saying, this is the Christ. When Christ goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath, there's a man with a withered hand and Christ heals him. And then Matthew makes this comment. Matthew is writing to the Jewish people and he writes in a way that uh, they will more easily understand. And he says, he goes into the temple on our Sabbath day, he sees a man with a withered hand and he heals him and he gets blowback because of that. But a bruised reed, he will not break. He could have crushed all the Pharisees that day if he wanted to, because they're bruised also. The bruised reed is a sign of weakness, weakened by external force. Because a a reed is not strong in of itself. It's weak already. But then you break it halfway, and it's completely weakened. Your life's like that. The smoking flax, which is coming next, again, is evidence of internal destruction already at work. With his smoke, there is fire. And there's various kinds of fire. Rust is a form of fire, burning away at the metal. Uh, During his ministry of grace, the servant God, the Christ, uh, he did not hasten the end. Uh, as As I pointed to with the legions, he let things play out. He waited patiently. Luke chapter 9, verse 56 For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Hmm. This is Christianity. Peter, chapter 3 of the second letter. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You can't get right with God without admitting that you're wrong with God. You're born, we are born wrong with God. 
and the, thus the need to be born again. Uh, the long-suffering, you know, some Christians say, I can't oh, I sure hope the rapture's today. Well, let's see, I was saved about almost 40 years ago. There are people that were praying that Christ would come back 50 years ago. If he answered their prayers, I would have been trapped in my sin or, or headed for the great tribulation period. So I'm not in such a rush anymore. If the rapture comes, I'm not protesting. Uh, I've got my position ready. I know how to go up. Joke. Uh, but I, I understand the salvation of souls is close to God's heart. He's willing to let the suffering play out, even though it, it disturbs him greatly too, because there are souls being saved. And then, let me say, the, this world is more wicked than you can know. Uh, video footage, record, video recordings or visual recordings from around the world have helped us understand that how widespread evil is, but it still doesn't get us there. God sees it all. We see fragments, uh, particles, and, and yet he... He sees the soul saved. That's why when it talks about his crucifixion, Isaiah 53, he says he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. It's going to be worth it to get them into heaven is what God is going to be saying, uh, is, is saying through the prophet. Anyway, uh, this is consistent with the next clause uh, that flax was often made out of these flax reeds. So he, Isaiah is being... He knows his stuff, you could say, in, in using his analogies. A smoking flax he will not quench. Now, they would twist the flax and use it for wicks, for lamps, and amongst other things. They would make garments. They did a lot of things for it. Uh, anyway, that which is struggling to fulfill its purpose. That's what a wick that is smoking. Uh, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's trying to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, and and uh, not talking about a wick that has just been snuffed out, but one that is still burning, and you want it to burn, but it's not flaming. Smoking flax is has within itself that uh, element of destruction within itself, and we all have had that experience to some degree, some some far greater. Some people are just self-destructive; they make poor decisions all the time. And one of the best things that they can do for themselves is come under uh, good discipleship and start uh, learning how not to trust their bad decisions. I don't want to simplify that because sometimes people bring you a scrambled egg and they say, could you unscramble this, please? No, I can't. I can't unscramble that. But, but maybe we don't have to spill it all over the place. Maybe we can do that. So... Uh, uh, the soul that is impenitent, that refuses the mercy of God, is the rebellious soul that is a smoking flax also. Well, he's not going to snuff them out. He's going to let it run its course until they burn out, until life ends. And uh, is this not also the case of the world? He could have ended it all at any time. He could have ended it at Adam and Eve. But God says, oh, I have my purpose. I am populating eternity with the people that will love me, sight unseen, but not without reason. Those are the ones I'm bringing into my eternity with me. And those who become born again, 
that is, is precisely what takes place. This world is a smoking flax. The fire within that slowly destroys it, eating, it, eating away what's left, but not fulfilling its purpose. He will bring forth justice for truth. That's the hallmark of Messiah. Truth and justice. Uh, you, tr- you know, you take truth away, you won't have justice. So think about uh, <clears throat> communist China to make the distinction. There's a, mar- a great difference between the Chai Koms and Chinese people. Uh, communism is a religion, and it is a violent, hateful religion. It destroys everything it touches. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying or just conveniently uh, in the dark. Uh, who wants to move to Cuba? Uh, you, you know, just uh, the, the people at the top of that pyramid are doing well. Everybody else is at the bottom. Uh, China, the floods have gone through. You know, they lose a million people in one shot. They don't even report it. People are expendable there. And, uh, you know, we're, we're oblivious to that. You're seeing more and more things that are saying made in Taiwan, made in India. Because China, China the, is a, a communist China. Uh, the Chai Koms at the top have created a tofu city, a tofu country. And they're trying to impress the world. And these things are collapsing all over the place. And the footage of it has to be smuggled out because they don't want to lose face. And uh, where am I going with that? I don't know. I just had that in me and I had to get it out. <laughs> no, I, I do have that. The reason why is because the corruption, the injustice, the lack of truth is it just has infested the land. The payoffs on building inspectors, the sewer systems, uh, the, the dr- water drainage storm systems, they aren't working. Uh, and so when they have a problem, things are very seriously. And so my point is, yeah, where there is no truth, there's not going to be justice. And where there is justice, there's going to be truth. And parents, you know, you raise your children's truth and justice have to be what, what guides you. Well, what is the alternative? Well, verse 4, if too much, I go on these rants. Uh, verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. So that last part, the coastlands shall wait for his law. That's the second coming. Isaiah, you know, he, he, he just is pointing out God's going to achieve his will, what he wants, his objective, regardless of how much time it takes. Um, but only the sinless Christ never failed. The cross was not a failure. It was a plan from the foundations of the world. It was not random. It was choreographed. And he followed it to the letter. And the letter was given to us in, again, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and other places. Only Jesus is sinless. And uh, I would categorize saying that Mary is sinless as a sin. That is unbiblical. That is a lie. Uh, and I'll, I'll hit that with a lot of verses soon, but I want to cover some space first. We'll come back to this, the beauty of the sinless one. It says, nor be discouraged. Uh, the word discouraged is the same word used up top for bruised reed. He's not going to be bruised. It's a proper rendering. Uh, he won't be moved off course, no matter what he has to go through. Um, he, he will not quench those that are failing, and he will not be quenched at disappointment. 
Uh, he would not discourage or discourage uh, others, nor will he be dis- discouraged until he has established justice, it says here. Uh, so uh, his strengths are not temporary. They are permanent. Verse 5, thus says God, Yahweh, that's the covenant name, is very significant uh, to the Jewish people, and it should be to Christians also. It could be rendered Jehovah or Yahovah, but Yahshua is probably closer to the pronunciation. You know, the Jews, they, they wouldn't write the whole word out. It was too sacred, so we've lost the uh, consonants and just have left with fragments of it. So the exact pronunciation is unclear. Well, but the fact is not unclear. That's the important part. If somebody comes to you and says, you know, love, the word love is not written in the book of Acts. Yeah, but the fact is all over the book. These men being persecuted to their death because they love Jesus and they love the people that they're trying to reach. The fact is what is important, not the package. And so, yeah, the, the fact of Messiah or Yahweh is unmistakable. And thus says God, Elohim in the Hebrew, Yahweh, so Yahweh is God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Were there naysayers in the day of Isaiah? Absolutely. The whole first 39 chapters are about all the people who don't believe in his own beloved homeland. The northern kingdom is gone because they didn't believe their own scripture. So Isaiah comes along and says, yeah, you believe what you want to believe. But I'm telling you, Yahweh is the creator. We're doing the same thing. With, you know, Evolution is laughable. The sad part is they won't abandon it. Because if they do, they have the only alternative that's viable is creation. Sagan the pagan, Carl Sagan... You know, he said, we're abandoning evolution. We're now looking to the stars. So aliens are going to be our gods. Well, where'd they come from? So you back to the same problem. You know, seeking to be wise, they became fools. Uh, they don't listen to the law and the prophets. What wisdom do they have, says the scripture. Anyway, the God of Israel is the creator of everything, except trouble. Unless you go against him. And that is his prerogative. That's, that's God. Colossians tells us, and not only Colossians, John and Hebrews, tells us that Christ is that creator. Christ is Yahweh. He's equal with the Father, indivisible. Colossians 1, verse 16, speaking of Jesus. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Satan is not the opposite of God. It's not a yin-yang thing going on. Yin-yang is a lie. There's no alternate power in the universe that's evil and equal to the power of good. Satan is a created being. And so he says that whether on earth, invisible or visible, whether physical or spiritual, whether they are thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers... They are under the authority of God. Now, what is left out of that verse is that something went wrong twice. Satan's rebellion, I will exalt my stars, I will be like the Most High, and then, of course, Adam and Eve. Here, Adam, eat this. Okay. And that, that behavior of lack of discernment and full-out disobedience is 
still in motion, has been ever since. It has never been a break except in Christ. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it? Well, in contrast to those who create the idols that were rampant in Isaiah's day who had these figurines with no breath, they couldn't see, they couldn't, they couldn't do anything. We covered that already in Isaiah. Um, uh, but anyway, verse 6. I, Yahweh, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Now, he's speaking about the coming Christ. He's not. This is not being applied directly to us. This is... These are characteristics that we benefit from in God. But right now he's speaking about uh, his his elect servant, his beloved servant. And Messiah is God Almighty, El Shaddai. Uh, As I mentioned, it will not be random. Matthew 5.14, Jesus said this to the church. It wasn't a church yet. He said this to the righteous Jews. And whatever Gentiles were righteous, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he says in another place, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That is called Christ likeness. It is a doctrinal position that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Part of that new creation is now he's giving off light. And uh, this is, uh, you know, when you come to Christ, you can't wait to tell people about Christ. That's shining the light. city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You, you, you know, when you first come to Christ, you annoy people. <laughs> like, oh, boy, he's going to preach to me. I know it. <laughs> you got that right, buddy. <laughs> it's like they can see the pin coming out of the grenade. Uh, maybe I should use more friendly examples. But I don't have any. I mean, they can, they can see me pulling the rake out of the pickup. I would <laughs> I will keep you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. The people there, here in verse 6, are the Jews. And the distinction between they and the non-Jews is the word Gentiles. And they both are under a new covenant now. Uh, Jeremiah said, God's going to give us a new covenant. And the new covenant is the New Testament. Same covenant, testament, same thing. Luke 22 Verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Not us. Christ was sinless. No one had to die for him. No one else was good enough to die for me. I love the gospel. I love the word of God. It's hard to, you know, it's a hard life because of the curse. But it's worth pursuing righteousness in Christ. So, we, uh, we move on. Uh, well, I should stop and say God wanted Israel to be the head of nations, leading them to Yahweh, to their creator. But because of idolatry, mainly idolatry, she, she failed. And uh, this will be patched up in the millennial reign when the Jews will again be righteous and not as a people backslide ever again. Verse 7 to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Well, this describes a state of lost and 
broken souls in every language, in every religion on earth. Um, found in Acts chapter 26. Demonstrating that the servant Messiah will overthrow the powers of darkness and the consequences of the curse from Eden. That he is over these things. He's above them. This is a superlative language again. The signs of and proof of Messiah were that uh, he would go through a village and heal everybody that was sick in accordance to the prophets. And this is why the Jews that rejected him had no excuse. And this is why the Jews that received him were able to link it to what had already been written. And uh, when, when Jesus uh, answered John's question, John says, are you the Messiah? Do we look for another because John couldn't figure out why the Romans weren't overthrown, because the Jews had this understanding that when the Messiah comes, he's going to take over, and he will, but not on the first coming. The second coming, he will. And Jesus essentially tells John, go tell John the things you've seen and things you've heard in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, you know, the, the poor have the gospel preached him. So what Jesus said is, go tell John what the scripture says, and John will connect the dot between what the Bible says, and what I am doing. And that will be his answer. And that is precisely what happens. However, Jesus omits the reference to the prisoners, as we just read here, to open blind eyes, bring out prisoners. He doesn't tell John that part because John's in prison. It's kind of a nice, you know, it's a sensitive move. It's like telling him I'm healing people and I'm preaching the gospel. Go tell him that part. Don't tell him a part about him letting the prisoners go free. Because he was spiritually, but not physically, not yet. Uh, so Jesus answered and said to him, Go tell John the things you have seen and heard. Luke 7, 22. Um, I think I quoted, misquoted the verse, but just the reference. Anyway, Jesus said, Go tell John the things you have seen and heard. That the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, just like the prophet Isaiah said Messiah would do. Verse 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Well, Yahweh essentially means in the Hebrew, the self-existent Savior. I mean, that's baked into that name, the I am that is, that is, his, his title is declared here. That is my name. That's what it says. I am Yahweh. That is my name. Self-existent. You, Exodus 3.14, if you want some Old Testament references. Assuring, everlasting, uh, an, an everlasting, unchangeable character. That's Exodus 3.15. The immutability of God, another doctrine, is critical. Because without that, you have a whimsical God. You don't know what he's going to do next. He's always changed. He's moody. That's the gods of the Romans and the Greeks. That's not the God of the Bible. He changes not. His, his methods adjust, but he, his character, does not change. So if God is love, he's not one day going to stop being a God of love and become the God of irritation. Uh, and so the critical doctrines, they all have to match, and they all do. It just takes a lot of work sometimes to articulate them. Uh, he has power to save, Exodus 6-2, as he pulled the Jews out of Egypt. His name is the guarantee 
of the fulfillment of his words. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. God, I'm not giving up any of this glory to that, that junk. I'm not yielding. I'm not giving anything to a lie. Sincerity does not overrule God's commandments or truth. But I really felt it in my heart. Yeah, well, it goes against what the scripture says, so it's void. To excuse oneself is to, from this truth, this principle, is to disapprove of God's character and will. To say, yeah, I know God says this and that, but I'm going to do this and he's going to wink at it. Uh, you're lying to yourself. You know, nobody says that, but people do it. And, uh, it, you know, as we can be ingenious as fallen beings at creating ways around sin. So the, um, this whole idea of man passionately creating God in their image is absolute sin, and God will have none of it. All idolatry, however well-meaning, is high treason against the true God. And he is not going to share his glory, which is, just shoots down Jehovah Witness doctrine, which is just wacky and unbiblical and anti-Christ. It is anti-Christ because it denies who Christ says he is. He says, no, you're not. <laughs> so, okay, well, you, you're going you're to answer for that. Only Jesus has this glory equal with the Father, not counting it robbery. No crime is that. Romans chapter 3, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And of course, we know later on it says Christ is sinless. He's the exception. Uh, again, Mary is, is not sinless. And there is not even a hint. Uh, Mary, blessed among women, not above women. And if she were sinless, she'd be above women. But that's not what the Bible says. So the Roman Catholic Church is an inveterate liar uh, when it comes to theology. And you say, well, that sounds me. I don't care about me. It's a fact. Uh, it's, it's not trying to be mean. I want Catholic people to come away from the doctrines of the popes and the cardinals and the bishops and come to the Bible and have that be their uh, authority. That's why the Reformers called it Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone is our authority for life. Uh, they, those guys, man, they were so against those popes and cardinals. But remember this. The, uh, the Reformers did a good thing. It was a courageous thing. But they still held on to some wacky doctrines. They don't set out theology. The apostles and the prophets set out theology. I'm not interested in John Calvin telling me what, what doctrine is. I want to know what the Bible says. And if that irritates people, that they have, then, you know, they'll be irritated and I'll be kind of satisfied that I irritated somebody. Anyway, no, I, I won't. Uh, verse 2. Uh, well, I'm sorry. John chapter 2, verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Now, the Christian knows, the student knows, he's talking about the wedding feast at Cana. He's going to turn the water, water into wine. I would have preferred milkshakes. I'm not an alcohol guy. But anyway, uh, this um, <laughs> heavy cleanup for the servants, right? Uh, coming back to this, this is the miracle at Cana. And John says, this is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. It would be blasphemy to say this about anybody else. 
And Rick manifested his glory. But you can say it about the Christ because it is true. John 12, 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. The Bible is very clear. Shared glory with Christ because he is equal with the Father. He is begotten of the Father, not created again. Only Jesus is seen in the New Testament sharing the glory of the Father. John chapter 14, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. You saw the prophet say it, you saw me do it. What else do you need? Philippians 1 verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd say that was shared glory. He's not saying grace and peace to you from God our Father and Peter the fisherman. It's Jesus Christ. And Paul does that with almost every letter he writes. He prefaces it with that. 1 John chapter 2, speaking of Antichrist uh, and anybody who is. There is the Antichrist, the coming beast, the man of perdition, the man of sin. And then there are Antichrists. There are individuals who are against Christ. Well, the Bible calls it out. Who is a liar but he who denies that Christ, that Jesus is Messiah, that he is Christ? And then he says, to answer that question, he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Can't say that about anybody. Ecclesiastes 7.20, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And at the time he wrote that, that was the way it is till Christ comes along. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from sin. Nobody can do that. Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, you have to be pretty, you have to have some pretty broad shoulders to have everybody's sin put on you. And you have to be sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin, is the laying it on his shoulders, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when God looks at the believer, he, see, he does not see the sinner. He sees the sinner cleansed by his grace. When he looks at the, the impenitent sinner, he sees the sin. It's there. Nothing has taken it away. If that guy gets into heaven because he did not repent on earth, he's going to be a troublemaker when he gets to heaven. So God has made a place for them, and we call it hell. And uh, it's not, it's not going to be, you know, okay. It's not going to be tolerable, or else it wouldn't be hell. Uh, the best that Jesus could point out about it, he's just going to be like that, see that fire burning that trash over there, those flaming, that, that's the best I can, you know, I can do for you. <laughs> Other than let's take you on a tour, which I'm not going to that. Uh, anyway, verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. No other, script, uh, no other religious writings has the prophecies like we have, not even close. Not, not, some don't even have none. The Quran has none. The Bible is over 400 concerning Christ alone, already fulfilled. And, and then some bonus ones of which one's to come? Sinless, telling the future, receiving worship, embracing the glory of the Godhead. This is Christ. These are exclusive rights to deity. John thirteen nineteen. Now I tell you before it comes, 
that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. You are who? I am the one that spoke to Moses from the bush that burned but was not consumed. I am the one that Isaiah talked about, that Jeremiah talked about, all of them. I should have read this. I meant to read it at the beginning. But I hope you have more time because I've got a lot more to go. And the kids, the children's workers are probably on the wall right now. So we're going to speed this up. We may have to cut this in half. But there's a verse in here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can't say that about an angel. Can't say these things about a created being. These superlatives are reserved for the uncreated creator. All things exist through him and for him. John 14, 29. And now I have told you before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. That's what God is after, belief. I'm trying to get you to believe me. The very thing that the curse of sin works from the inside out to stop us. Well, we're going to stop there. Well, we, we can do this little section to verse 13. So Scott will stop at verse 13. Uh, on the heels of this chosen servant, behold my servant, comes this outburst of song. Verse 10, sing to Yahweh a new song. And we sing to him songs all the time. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Verse 11. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar uh, that inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare his praise in the coastlands. These are, these Arab peoples here. Kedar was Ishmael's second son. Ishmael was not a good neighbor. His hand will be against every man and every man will be against him. He wouldn't want, he's just a knucklehead. The only conclusion you can come from that. And he was Abraham's firstborn, but not according to the spirit. Anyway, here is Isaiah looking at these, uh, the Selah, Edomite fortress that, the Edomites, the Esau, the brother of Jacob, they established that wilderness fortress. The Moabites then took it over. Then after them, the Arabs got it. These Arab people are inveterate enemies of the Jews. And yet Isaiah the prophet, the Jewish prophet, is saying, we want the Lord to bless them too. He starts out with the light to the Gentiles. In verse 13, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout. He shall prevail against his enemies. And so the Lord will overthrow all that are against him. You, you can't beat God. That's where we need to stop tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, just wonderful language that when the Spirit fills the heart, it's so easy to see. It's so easy to love. Once it is laid out before you, there's nothing to object to. We thank you for these things. We pray you get us all home safely. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.